Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. You know, this show is here. You're listening to it because of the support we get from subscribing contributors, and we'd like to do more of this kind of work for you. So you can make the show happen when you donate to KUOW. It's the final day of the fiscal year, and we are 303 monthly donors away from KUOW's fundraising goal. That's all to say that you'd be supporting a great journalist panel like this one. Seattle Times environment reporter Isabella Breda, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Bill. KUOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg, welcome back. Great to be here. Thanks, everybody, for coming on. And you can see this group if you watch us on Facebook or YouTube. We're streaming the show. Let's get into some of the uh, happenings this week locally. Washington State now has America's most expensive gasoline. Is that because Governor Inslee is addressing climate change by charging the oil industry money? Did our state leadership lie about how much this action would raise gas prices? Isabella, you have reported on this for the Seattle Times. First of all, let's start with why Washington, for the first time, I think, has the USA's most expensive gas, four ninety nine a gallon. Why is that? Yeah, so it's a little bit more complicated than any of the things that we've been asking. Um, but we know that... Could I lay it out a bit simplistically <laughs> there? <laughs> Just a tad. Okay. But, but it's easy to glaze over it that way because it is a complicated issue. Yes. And a lot of it happens behind a curtain. Yes. And so oil companies in 2022 raked in these record profits, $200 billion. And we know from our reporting in the past that in Washington state, they've enjoyed these really comfortable 85 maybe more cent profit margins at least. And that's based on estimates from the Oil Price Information Service. Um, But we do know that this year on January 1st, Washington State rolled out two ambitious attempts at tackling the climate crisis, which one comes in the form of this auction where you're selling out uh, these allowances that allow businesses to pollute, essentially. They're considered permits to pollute. That's also not a very fond term. Mm -hmm. But it also sets a statewide cap on emissions. So any of those companies that are polluting above the cap need to buy these allowances. Right. So these information campaigns began last year saying, like, as soon as this rolls out, there's going to be this carbon tax. Well, it's not a tax. We know that those failed in Washington state attempts to get those on the ballot. Yes. Um, Instead, this puts the accountability on the polluter. So what it might look like is they're buying up these allowances and the cost might come down the chain and they calculate out, okay, maybe this looks like 40 or so cents a gallon. And as we know, oil companies are making these record profits. They don't have to pass the costs on. Uh, They could have put costs on gasoline for whatever they want, operational or overhead or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they're now saying that these costs are coming directly from the legislation. We don't know how legitimate these claims are, but we do know that now these groups that are funded by the oil industry are putting out information that says, you know, this is how much, you know, Governor Inslee's legislation is, is costing and it's hurting the consumer. Right. Okay. Before I hear from our other panelists... Did the carbon pricing program cause the rise in gas prices? I know you sort of just answered it, but I, you know, what if some, for someone just tuning in and wanting to know, bottom line, did the state's action, climate change action, increase the cost of gas? What do you say? It's not that clear cut, right? Okay. There's a lot of factors that go into gas prices. A lot of them are international policies. There's been this pipeline maintenance that AAA reported on and other news outlets across the state. What we do know is there are some like novel estimates coming down the pike that say, you know, it might be around 50 cents because carbon is selling for $50 per metric ton. So if you do like some napkin math, maybe that adds up. But we don't know for a fact that all oil companies are passing on the same costs. There's also many other polluters in the state. So in in theory, those costs might be showing up in the cost of cement or other commodities, but we just don't know enough to be able to say for sure. 
You know what it kind of reminds me of is this broader trend of greedflation in the economy that we saw during the pandemic when there were all these supply chain disruptions. Like, I think the example that's always raised is chicken. Like, there was a bird flu. There was a Mm -hmm. lot going on. The cost of selling chicken was really high. And so companies started selling it at a higher cost, realized some people will pay this higher cost. And when those kind of costs in the background went down, they they tested the market for them and they sort of had this cover uh, this cover story for raising prices. I know you know much more about gas pricing than I do, and it is really complicated, and it's not exactly the same thing. But I guess my bottom line question is, like, is it a one-to-one, like, this legislation caused this, or is it really, like, companies' decisions and the various ways that they can sell the, that to consumers? So the way it's been explained, I mean, by the State Department of Ecology and others, is that it's just like any other operational cost. Like, this is a new cost of doing business in Washington, right? You're going to have to pay for your pollution into the atmosphere. And in the past, you didn't have to. So maybe in some cases, it might be more one-to-one. There's also questions about, you know, oil companies have compliance obligation at the refinery level and at the level where they sell fuel at wholesale that's later burned in your tailpipe. So maybe it makes sense they're passing some of those costs on one-to-one because they're not the ones burning the fuel. It's consumers that are. Right. So... It's you. It's me. (laughs) If the cost is going to consumers, is there an argument that maybe that's how the legislation is intended? That is an argument. I don't know how well supported and welcome that argument is. But to some degree, I mean, that's what was intended out of like the 2018 carbon fee was that it would change consumer behavior. And on the flip side, unlike the carbon fee, where you might not know those funds go out into the ether, um, we know with the CCA funds that there's $2 billion in investments into like transit and uh, electric vehicles and electric bikes that are all supposed to come back to consumers in some way. So it's intended to kind of level out and help incentivize that change. Yeah, again, that would be up to us. If we are price elastic, if, if we'll pay any cost, then oil companies have been undercharging us all the time, to- all this time. But if we are responding to the higher cost as we're quote unquote supposed to, from that point of view, then you would buy less gas you'd buy an electric vehicle right you would use transit more do we know do we have any signs whether washingtonians are reacting to the higher price of gas by buying less of it i've only started getting into the numbers around evs and last time i looked was like last fall and i know that ev purchases were up last year across the u.s and in washington specifically um and so i guess the point of these incentives is to help folks that otherwise might not be able to afford an ev or any of the infrastructure associated if you want to get charging at home or anything like that um and does the incentive money come from the money that the state makes from this carbon pricing program yeah Yeah. so you're getting it directly i mean indirectly from the companies that are paying for their emissions right I think that that idea that the market will set what the price of gas really should be, though, it kind of ignores some realities. It assumes that we live in this, you know, perfect capitalist miracle where there's, uh, you know, tough competition between all different sizes of companies that are selling your gas and there's alternatives that people can rely on, that there's a vast transit system everywhere throughout the state of Washington. And Mm -hmm. none of that is true. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people who have to get to doctor's appointments or work and they, they can't take a bus that takes two or three times as long. They've got kids. I mean, there's just so much going on that will force people in some cases to eat the extra cost because they have to. So then we've been undercharged, (laughs) according to my high school economics uh, teacher, Mr. Caviezel. Uh, One little thing about that, the – well, I'm not even going to get into Mr. Caviezel. It's just too (laughs) much. It's been too much economic theory. Um, But, okay, what what else should we cover about this? Did did, – I saw the accusation that our state – I've heard it both ways. As Alex said, our state – on one theory is, yeah, we're making it more expensive to pollute. That's how right. it's supposed to work. On the other hand, I hear our state officials lied to us. Governor Inslee said, we're talking pennies maybe this would add to the price of gas. Was that a either an error or a lie? That's a tough one, too, because, again, it's like how much can you anticipate how oil companies are going to react? I mean, the factors that we do know is that they continue to collect record profits. They have high profit margins in Washington state. In California, some economists, not all, agree on whether or not they may have added a fee there when their similar program rolled out. Um, But 
I totally lost my thought of trains. <laughs> well, then, then, then the governor should have just said, we don't know, not this is only going to cost you pennies under that theory. Right, right. But then the question is, how much transparency is there around fuel prices, right? So in California, the Energy Commission there comes up with these estimates every week that says, like, here are the things that go into fuel prices that you're seeing. It's like federal excise tax, you know, underground storage fees, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all based on an estimate. But a new program just rolled out in California to actually provide additional transparency on fuel prices. And that's something that we don't have access to in Washington. So it's hard to say how much anyone would have known. Right. Okay. One final question um, on on gas. Could the gas, could the oil, I know there's different, there's distributors, there's refiners, there's different oil companies in the chain, but could the oil industry be raising prices as a PR campaign, you know, an anti-state carbon pricing program PR campaign? That's a totally valid question. I mean, if you go to the fuel distributors, like trade group website, they are offering these uh, fuel toppers. So like you go to the gas station and where you're actually fueling up, there's like these little triangular device, like poster board type things that they're offering for people to put up that basically say like repeal the tax Mm -hmm. or, you know, follow this QR code to this petition that explains like why this is a bad policy. So to some degree, maybe it's fueling that fire. Okay. Meanwhile, who we're talking about climate change. I know there's climate and there's weather, but Eastern Washington are, is in the 90s today, close to 100 next week, uh, 80s on the here on the west side. Isabella, you reported this week that Washington is predicted to have an above normal fire season. Why is that? So it's kind of a culmination of a lot of factors, right? So we've been trending on the drier side in the past few decades. We can't link that to climate change. What we we can point to climate change on is that, you know, just in the Seattle area alone, we've seen temperatures climb on average about three degrees over the summers, according to one analysis. Um and the culmination of hot and dry is never good in terms of fire season. And then on top of that, in Washington we had three years of La Nina, which is like cooler weather weather, which is great and welcome for providing that like maybe quelling the fire seasons or having like this wet spring. This year we had an abnormally dry spring, but those wetter seasons added to all of this growth of fuels for fires. So grasslands in the Columbia Basin like exploded and now a lot of state officials are concerned that those are going to be uh, fuel to be able to torch into timberlands and cause worse fires than we've seen in a while. Is Canada's fire season expected to affect us as well? I know it's affecting New York, Chicago, and I think they're expecting a pretty devastating summer up there as well. Yeah, so it's the entire, just in this forecast that was for the western U.S., I mean, it was like Oregon, Idaho, Montana, um, there's a similar outcome expected in B.C., So we can expect, if it's not our smoke, smoke from up north or elsewhere. I think I saw in your reporting that Washington just did its first prescribed burn. That's, you know, setting a a fire on purpose to try to reduce the risk of a bigger fire later in decades. Is that right? Yeah. So there were, like, basically policies over the years that had tamped down on the ability for, like, state and federal agencies to do prescribed burns. And a lot of that had to do with smoke, right? Because our communities weren't necessarily prepared to handle smoke. But um, under Hillary Franz, DNR rolled out a new prescribed fire season. I believe we're in the second or third year of that now, but they burned about 600 plus acres just this spring in anticipation. Will it make a difference? That is the goal, right? So they looked at the areas that were like most prone to fire. So like near a shooting range, because that can spark fires. Um, Other areas that are especially hot and dry and kind of just burned up all of those available fuels. So hopefully they're not available for a fire coming through. Well, you mentioned shooting range. Don't most fires happen? They're caused by humans? Yeah, about 87 to 90 percent are human caused. So that's the big picture that we're looking at, right? We have these high fire risks, but we don't know if it'll come to fruition. Like ultimately, it's like the Smokey Bear thing, like only you can prevent wildfires Mm because you kind of can. But there are other like ignition events that can happen. So like high winds and power lines and things to watch out for. So if no one flicks a cigarette or lights a firework, or we might be okay? In theory. <laughs> or builds a power line. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, if you don't like the smoke from the prescribed burn, 
just think about the smoke that uh, you or somebody else will get from mm-hmm. giant wildfires again this summer. Okay, hope not. Can we? Is that n- enough on that for a moment? Okay, one more topic before we take a break. Uh, on shifting to another news item this week. By the way, KOW's Week in Review. Hi, um, <laughs> the union organizing Starbucks workers say that their strikes have closed. The last I heard was twenty-one stores since last weekend, including the Reserve Roastery on Seattle's Capitol Hill, and the union says they're not done striking. Starbucks Workers United, that's the union. I think they represent uh, workers in 300 stores or something. Not, you know, it's a small amount of Starbucks stores globally. But uh, the union says that management prohibited some employees from putting up pride decorations this month, which Starbucks calls that claim a public relations stunt. Monica, what is the truth? Oh, the, everybody has their own truth, Bill. Oh. <laughs> um, you know. Well, let's just end the show there. What really, what's the point? <laughs> uh, yeah, what are we all doing here? Um, you know, Starbucks is a huge corporation with thousands of stores. And so I think that there that there is actually some truth to that. That I think that they, if they had any sort of a strategy here around pride, it wasn't on the books. They didn't have a policy saying we're going to tell our managers to tell employees that they can't put pride decorations off. I don't think that that is the situation. Um, but it's possible that they de-emphasized it, that they didn't go all in on pride in the way they have in previous years because we're seeing so much backlash to you know rainbow capitalism, corporate pride, um, really on all sides of the political spectrum. And Bud Light, Target. Yeah. Um, and it's a huge company. So I think they're – It's also. I'd also think that the experiences of these employees that they're sharing at, I think, what was it, like uh, 20 or 30 stores um, where managers for various reasons discourage them or wouldn't let them put up pride decorations. I mean, I think that's probably true too and, and a very likely scenario in the political climate that we live in now. So – what to me, what this really represents is how much bad blood there is between the union and Starbucks. Starbucks has engaged in a pretty aggressive campaign against this union effort, and the union is also, you know, it's organized. It's 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 good at PR. It's good at putting its message out there. Um, and I think that it's a sign of the times and a sign of this struggle where they just they haven't had a contract in more than a year, and everybody's really frustrated and pointing fingers. I think it shows sort of the limits of rainbow capitalism that people have been warning about too, right? Um, These companies can use the symbols associated with these communities um, for good PR, but then when they suffer the campaigns of, you know, some bad faith actors online, as those swell with popularity, they back off really quickly, right? They sort of leave the people they were allies with out to dry. You hear a lot of that with Target and Bud Light lately. Um, We kind of saw that happen last year when Seattle Pride said, oh, Amazon, we don't want your sponsorship. Um, because one day you could leave us out to dry, you know, and we let you plaster your name all over our, our celebration. For those who don't know, I just want to keep listeners up on this. It, Target stores, some shoppers were knocking down displays, right, and criticizing uh, Yeah, there'd be like TikTok t-shirts. viral videos of people like accosting um, workers saying, hey, why do you have these shirts? And they'd have like a rainbow on them and yeah. stuff. Yeah, and Bud Light partnered with this uh, transgender influencer and and put her name on a on a can. Yeah, and she actually just made a TikTok, um, basically saying Bud Light hasn't come to her defense, and you know she's had death threats and people um, coming after her because again, there's this these big online campaigns um, orchestrated by bad faith actors, you know, on the right um, targeting these people. Yeah, Dylan Mulvaney is her name, and she just mm-hmm. pu- published a video talking about exactly that that. She said it was worse for a company to try to do a partnership with her and, and include her in her brand, their brand, and then drop her and not p- support her than to not partner at all because that sort of gives permission to all of their customers to be hateful toward trans people everywhere. So, Monica, I guess, like, what is this telling us about how corporations are going to stand on any other human rights issues? It's a great question. I mean, this is something that I've been covering in recent years because I think the expectations for these big corporations have really changed, especially with younger generations of employees. I think this idea of sort of like, well, we don't get involved in things that are outside the scope of our business doesn't really fly anymore. And I think part of that is the sign of the times. And part of that is that these issues are deeply personal to people. You know, if if 
people work for a company in a state where they don't feel like their children are going to be safe, where they don't feel like they can access health care, then it feels really like flimsy and disingenuous for their employer to say, well, like, that's none of our business. So I don't know where we're headed. I, I don't see an easy solution for anyone. But I do think that companies are going to have to figure out what they stand for and stand by that. I think it also kind of exposes, um, you know, this strategy. It, at what point is representation actually exploitation? I think Dylan Mulvaney is kind of showing that right now, right? The the campaign, and I don't even think it was really like a big commercial campaign. They just partnered with her for her TikTok. Um, obviously, a ploy of representation. And now that they're not really backing her up, that they're kind of kowtowing, it's starting to feel more like that was exploitation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And Bud Light sales have plummeted. I keep hearing. Yeah, yeah, I, I keep reading that. Um, they own so many beer brands, though, that I think Anheuser-Busch is going to be okay. <laughs> well, but and and that's the interesting thing is yeah. it's, I think, Dylan is saying it's just the symbolism. Even if Budweiser's parent company is fine, it is the symbolism it of, uh, you know, that's happened. Okay, so where where should we end? Just the idea that that's, this is, because Starbucks is also saying this is a bigger issue than just the, the pride decorations right they're all there as you were saying you think this is about bad blood union bad blood larger for starbucks right i think that's part of it you know starbucks says that we are and have always been an inclusive workplace and they point to their policies to protect lgbtq employees um but they i have think, a flag atop their headquarters the pride flag all that yeah but i think that when you are a company that might be headquartered in a liberal coastal city like right. seattle but have retail operations everywhere throughout the country you are going to be a battleground in these culture wars and i don't think anybody has figured out how to really do that well yeah that is monica nicholsberg KUOW's labor and economy reporter perfect week to have monica on and seattle times environment reporter isabella breda puget sound business journals tech reporter alex halverson breaking down the week you can watch us on youtube and facebook that's the show we're going to take a pause and come right back we have more to say about the week gone by support comes from kenmore air offering getaways to charming victoria bc with daily flights just a quick 45 minute flight from seattle to victoria's inner harbor from only 169 dollars per person one way bookings available now at kenmoreair.com support comes from pacific science center celebrating spring at paxi with butterflies at the tropical butterfly house sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool and jane goodall reasons for hope at the imax theater a journey around the globe to share good news stories learn more at paxi.org It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. And uh, as I said, we've got Alex Halverson from Puget Sound Business Journal, Isabella Breda from the Seattle Times, and Monica Nicholsberg, KUOW. You reported this week on Value Village going to the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, The thrift store's parent company is actually called Savers. It's headquartered in Bellevue. There are about a dozen value villages in western Washington. I don't think any in Seattle anymore. Nope. All the Seattle proper ones have closed, but they're still doing well. Yeah. Many more in Canada, uh, Australia, I understand. And they went public. Value Village's parent company went public this week. Stock offering. And how did that go? It went great for them. They came out of the gates with a higher stock price than they'd initially forecast, and then their stock kept climbing until um, their valuation, their market cap was like nearly $4 billion that day. So it was definitely a success story. Alex Halverson over at Puget Sound Business Journal, that was that was a big story? Was it was this an unexpected success for their Value Village IPO? Yeah, I didn't know much about it. Um, and you're seeing reports that maybe this is opening the door for larger IPO um, activity, which has been, you know, as markets interest rates are really high, it's been sort of down. Um, so Initial public offering, in case I didn't say that. Yeah. yeah they, a, they went public. When a company goes on the on the um, ticker, they're under the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, they're saying it could be a good sign for other companies want to make a similar move. Yeah. Was this IPO plan hatched in 2012 when... <laughs> Do, Mac- we, do we credit Macklemore? Do we credit <laughs> Macklemore? I mean, a leopard mink fur stole for 99 cents. Wow, that's a strong valuation. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, a good deal. It's a good deal. Um, yeah, you will pop that tag. So why, 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 do we think, why do we think they went public? Why do, you, why do we think it was a success? 
Well, the secondhand market is huge and growing. It's expected to triple in the next – or more than double in the next three years, I think, was in my story. And um, part of that is just this really changing culture around shopping and retail with younger generations. I don't know if you're on TikTok, Bill, but – Of course. <laughs> I have a teenage daughter. Well, there you go. So she might be scrolling and see – KUOW uh, is on TikTok. TikTok and I, there's some Bill Radke videos up there. So absolutely, Monica. Go yes, on. You're hip. You're with it. With it. Um, so thrift hauls are a really popular meme on TikTok where people mm. will post all their treasures that they found. Um, I think it's in, in response to fast fashion and the huge problems in that industry, both with like treatment of workers, but also waste, microplastics. Um, I can say personally, like 99% of my shopping is at thrift stores now because if I'm going to buy something new, I feel like I need to do research and like make sure it's a company with some ethical standards and it's just like it, it's fraught. But at the thrift store... It's like I am standing between this garment and a landfill. I could do anything. And it's cheap. So it's a way to, to shop that feels better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's happening in a big way. I mean, you're seeing this market explode. So it kind of makes sense, even though you think like a thrift store on Wall Street. That's weird. It, it does sort of fit with what's happening with retail trends. Are there any like private thrift store brands or is it just? Yeah. So, uh, so Value Village is the biggest private thrift store chain. Um, there are smaller ones. I think Buffalo Exchange is private. And they've gotten, especially Value Village, has gotten some criticism over the years as sort of looking like a goodwill, seeming like a nonprofit, but actually being for-profit, which I can understand. But they also buy a lot of their stock from nonprofit thrift stores. And I think if the mission is to reduce waste in fashion, to me, it's, it's not that important that it's a nonprofit. But there was a court case over that, wasn't there? That they Value Village was supposedly claiming to be, I don't remember the details now, claiming to be charitable. Mm -hmm. But do you remember how that turned out? I wish I had called this up. I don't remember myself. I don't remember all of the details, but I think the spirit was that. It was that it it looked like a goodwill because it it is mission-driven, but I think, you know, mission-driven for a profit. Yeah, that's our mission mission is is profit. profit. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, both of you, Monica and Alex, brought up this, the observed that the successful stock offering of a secondhand store couldn't not necessarily be good news for the economy. Yeah, I mean, I think the glass half full look is like, oh, IPOs are coming back after a slump, after all the pandemic weirdness. This one went really well. But two others the same day did not perform very well. And I I mentioned this in my story, like, well, who's going to do better than a thrift store if there's a recession? Kind of, it's sort of, that's the glass half empty way to look at it. Right. I guess that's a bigger, is, is, is a, an IPO's success more about the individual, the financials of that company, or just about the hot, hot sector of cheap stuff? <laughs> I mean, judging by the market, maybe on that side, but um, interest rates are kind of being paused for that. Um, so, so you could open a window, but like Monica said, there were two companies. I can't remember the names, but their stock ticked down pretty quickly right wow. after trading. All right. Well, my investing philosophy, number one, show up as soon as the stock exchange opens because the best IPOs are picked over by like 10 (laughs) a.m. And sometimes you can find a stock with a great price per earnings ratio on the rack outside the dressing room. At the NYSE. They leave some great stuff there. (laughs) Say good luck, bargain hunters. Um, Let's move to our next uh, topic here on Week in Review. And that starts with a question. What is an urban downtown for? Is it just office towers and shopping? Workers come in in the morning and split in the evening? Well, since taking a big pandemic hit, downtown Seattle has been slowly changing, diversifying. But Mayor Bruce Harrell would like to speed that up. This week, KUOW reporter Joshua McNichols was at a mayoral news conference about ways to activate downtown. What if you can't fill a vacant storefront? Maybe instead of retail, you could put in lab space or a conference room. Maybe a developer can't make a residential tower pencil out economically, so the city will let you build a taller building if you include a daycare or a school on the bottom floors. Mm, A downtown school. There are many other plans and ideas from the mayor, but Alex, you picked those out as a couple of of the most interesting. The, The desire to bring more homes in and maybe bring a school into downtown. Yeah, Mayor Harrell's um, plans for downtown have been nebulous at best um, prior to this, but this was the most concrete plan. 
Um, office workers are returning to downtown, but optimistically, the growth is linear. Um, you know, they're averaging 75 to 85,000 office workers a day. In 2018 and 2019, you could see that number reach 200,000. So the recovery is just not there. Um, earlier, a few months ago, you saw developers sort of switch to buildings like life science buildings, lab buildings, which Joshua mentioned, where workers have to be there. So another way they're kind of looking to get people downtown is well, what if they just live there? Um, that's where this, this sort of rezoning plan comes in. Make higher buildings. People can live there. And then SPS, Seattle Public Schools, has always had a desire to have a school downtown. That's where this sort of incentive or that clause in there comes from, um, which is a pretty popular idea. You know, I've talked to people at large employers in the city. Um, I won't name names, but they like the idea of a school being downtown, you know, where some of their workers are. People work in Belltown, live in Belltown, South Lake Union, but there's no schools to serve their kids if they live there. Are there enough kids? This is a this is a catch twenty two, right? Are there enough kids for a school? Why would kids be there if there's no school? I think the idea is, you know, you make downtown more of a neighborhood that's not as um, you know, apartment heavy, rent heavy where people are living early on in their careers, but they just live there later in life. And there are private schools that folks who live downtown send mm-hmm. their kids to. So I think, yeah. you know, if there's a great public school, then the hope would be some of them would do that instead. Yeah, good point. But as for the taller residential towers, does that mean uh, builders are going to be demolishing some building skyscrapers and building taller skyscrapers? I mean, the area they're talking about, the buildings aren't too big, right? Okay. Like the Macy's building is down there. Um, oh, okay. So that gives you an idea. Right now, the I think the buildings can only be 170 feet. So they're small, relatively. Smaller stuff. Okay. Um, so unless there's going to be some sort of technological advancement, they're going to have to demolish some buildings to make way for these big residential towers. Yeah. Also on the mayor's list, improved street lighting, graffiti cleanup, targeting gun violence and drug dealers, an opioid recovery center that paramedics can take people to instead of the hospital. Um, the mayor suggested Pike Street be pedestrian only between First and Second Avenues. More food trucks there. Am I am I missing something that jumped out to any of you? There was this idea of a a linear arts district along the streetcar line, so that you could take the streetcar to these different like you mm-hmm. know exhibitions and um, facilities. That that one caught my eye. Yes, good point. He he brought up building out the street line the for, along First Avenue to connect the two existing disconnected lines mm-hmm. yeah the arts an arts a line of arts a line of arts they're cool ideas i was you know there's the were these ai gener- generated images of what these projects could look like and i definitely got sucked into them i was like man what a world to live in but i also really hear the criticism that these pie in the sky ideas would be nice but we can't even get our arms around the addiction and homelessness crises that we've been trying to deal with for 10 years now. Or yep. another worry is the pit near Seattle City Hall. Um, what if we demolish a building and then something happens and we just have a pit on 3rd Avenue? Right. Um, you know, I, we have an office in Pioneer Square and there's this big pit behind our office where this huge office residential tower is going supposed to go in and they haven't even started on it. Well, I think the new public school, the kids at recess would go play in the pit. Which <laughs> <laughs> is not bad. I like your platform. Thank you. Thank you. You could yeah. build a park in the pit. Build a park. <laughs> Lunch in the pit. <laughs> park in the pit. Uh, the mayor did did stress that these housing, you know, efforts to build more housing options is fundamental to a lot of these other things because, you know, he thinks right of the linkages between if you can't find a place to live, then you've got all these other problems that lead to more addiction, more crime, et cetera, et cetera. But as you say, Monica, you're you're skeptical that we have the money to make a significant dent in this big wish list. Yeah. I mean, I think it just, these seem like moonshot ideas to yeah. me. And the refrain that we've been hearing from City Hall over and over and over again is we, we just can't bring in even a fraction of what it would cost to actually address our most pressing problems. Mm-hmm. Did, speaking of the AI mock-ups, did you see the that one of the mayor's ideas is for some kind of sports complex, but not for watching sports, but for playing sports, possibly a multi-story pickleball center. 
I did. Pickleball is so hot right now. I feel like every day somebody says pickleball to me. Uh, yeah, I'll try to just walk by your desk. Uh, uh, just it's just a Washington thing. <laughs> it did. It was started here on Bainbridge we Island. Did. We used to yeah. play it in high school. Really? Yeah. yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it started on Bainbridge. And I saw in the New York Times this morning oh. that, uh, did you see the thing about noise complaints? Yes. Pickleball. I just started, it's very noisy. It's very noisy, yeah. especially if if someone hits it to you high and you hit it overhead, your paddle is near your ear. And it is like a cannon going off. And apparently there's something I wish I could. It's like a noise con or something. There was a noise conference. The people who study noise effects, noise pollution and whatnot. Just in, it was either March or May. And the big topic was pickleball. That was the big hot topic of noise con. Wow. There was also a headline this week that pickleball injuries are skyrocketing. What? Yeah. How can you hurt yourself <laughs> playing pickleball? That's the point. It's not a lot of movement. Maybe if you're very competitive. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got a lot of years under your belt. Mm-hmm. You know? It oh. is an ACL nightmare. I mean, just going back and forth. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, all right, one, one more point on the mayor's news conference. He said he would give more help to people experiencing homelessness, and some protesters were there saying that the city is heartlessly sweeping tent encampments without helping the people who live there. Mayor said not true. I flat out disagree because I was one of the architects on the council about a housing-first approach. We don't sweep. We offer shelter. So there's a label dispute there, you know, call it sweep or don't. And then we have the Major League Baseball All-Star Game coming up in like a week and a half. And that's going to be interesting to see what the city does. Are they going to roust people and, you know, put on the the shiny baseball uh, face? Um, did we cover it? Downtown so. activation, that's the plan, activation. There are space needle ideas, he calls them, big innovative ideas. Great buzzwords, I'll give him that. Right? Pickleball on the space needle, pickleball <laughs> in the pit. All right, we're, uh, we're breaking down the news of the week for you on Week in Review uh, with Alex Halverson there, Puget Sound Business Journal, Seattle Times' Isabella Breda, KUOW's Monica Nicholsberg. We're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, and we're going to take another break and then take another whack at what happened this week, so don't go away. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This show is here. It's online. It's in your ears because subscribing contributors stepped up, and we'd like to do more work like this. So you can join in. Make KUOW happen by donating. There's a donation link, just KUOW.org slash donate slash Week in Review, if you're so inclined. But we are, as a station, a whole station, we're 300 Three monthly donors away from the fundraising goal, and it's the final day of the fiscal year. So, And one more factoid, a 1,000 new monthly donors pays for about 20 podcast episodes. Uh, you can get in on that. So uh, thank you for that. Let's get on with the show and what happened this week. King County decided after much debate to require every business in unincorporated King County to accept cash payments. This is Council Member Jeannie Cole Wells saying some people don't have access to credit or debit cards. These are all communities that by and large already have less power, less ability to just be able to get their food and essentials unless they pay by cash. So there was a lot of debate around this. Who wins and loses under the requirement that businesses accept cash? Who wants to begin? I mean, people who win are the people who, you know, might not have a checking or savings account. Um, Lev Elson Schwab, advocacy chair of the League of Women Voters of Seattle King County, brought up that, you know, cashless society presumes a level of financial stability that many people just don't have. And that is a reality, you know. Um, obviously, it's not a very convenient truth, but, but it is one. It seemed like there was kind of a um, data vacuum around this. There were, like, as I was looking into it, I couldn't find answers to some 
kind of basic questions that I wanted to know the answer to, like how many, what percentage of transactions in King County are in cash? Okay. Could, you know, a lot of the concerns raised by businesses are that it's not safe for them to keep a lot of cash on hand, but maybe could they just keep a little cash on hand? I not, mean, I don't see people using cash very often. Right. I just want to spell out not safe because uh, thieves know they have cash on hand, robbers. and right? That, that, that was idea? my assumption. Yeah. yeah. That seems to be sort of the rhetoric around it. Again, like you said, this kind of a data vacuum, I don't know if those are up or not um or if that precludes people right and it's like maybe anecdotally we know what percentage of folks might need to rely on cash because like alex was saying they might not have a checking or savings account and then some elderly folks like you know don't carry credit cards or they just pay in check or cash and so there's definitely like segments of the population that rely on it but it's hard to say like why folks ended up on one end or the other of the debate and this doesn't apply in Seattle proper, is that right? Because I, I think I saw that at Climate Pledge Arena. I have not been there yet, but you, everything is credit cards and they charge a 3% fee on everything? So none of the stadiums you can um, pay with cash. And increasingly, they're all the Amazon Just Walk Out technology. So you're really not even using a card. I mean, you use a card to pay, but you're not swiping a card. So you're, you're really uh, on digital. I did so that experience high- that at T-Mobile Park, and it, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> They can get you to buy a lot of stuff that way. (laughs) Well, I think it makes it kind of an interesting consumer story. The Seattle Times brought this up. Um, There was a 2021 MIT study that um, credit cards facilitate purchasing behavior. So Mm -hmm. psychologically, you're more likely to spend more when you're using a credit card or debit card. Less work than counting. What's that? Less work than counting, right? Right. Well, that's another aspect. uh, Speaking of counting, is that businesses that use cash have to count that, have Mm -hmm. to make trips to the bank. That's a cost of doing business. Um, to your question, yeah, this is just unincorporated King County, so not Seattle, which highlights the fact that you, a lot of people have pointed out that your cash says that it's legal tender for all debts, public and private or something. But um, the reason that Lumen Field, et cetera, uh, Climate Pledge, they don't have to take cash. They're not an unincorporated King County, and they don't have to do it because a – an exchange of cash for goods is not considered, at least unless the court uh, says differently, is not considered incurring a debt. So you may think that your cash says, I can use this cash anywhere, and you're going to wave it around, everybody has to take it. It's not true. Whether it should be or not, it's not true, right? That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Um, There are exemptions, though, right? Some exemptions to the cash requirements. Some establishments... Uh, barbershops, for example, I'm not sure the the criteria, but there are some establishments that provide services that are exempt, and uh, you only have to take cash if for purchases up to $200. You don't have to take cash only for a, a bigger purchase than that. You don't have to take denom. This is a big deal. You don't have to take denominations higher than $20. So even if an unincorporated King County, if you've got a hundred dollar bill that says it's legal tender for all debts incurred. Uh, they don't. They don't have to take that hundred dollar bill, and businesses can apply for an exemption to this mandate. That's what I saw, and I think that's going to turn out to be more interesting. Like, do we see the um, vendors at baseball fields or football fields apply for this because they could maybe argue, "Hey, you got the ticket to the game. You know, you we can presume you're financially stable." Um, I wonder if that's an argument that's going to be coming up. Yeah. Okay, so uh, law takes, and by the way, the law doesn't take effect until 2025 in any case. We've got time. We've got some time. <laughs> collect uh, your cash now. All right, collect your cash now. Um, I, so we have, uh, we have time to get into uh, anything that made us smile this week, because it doesn't always happen with every news story. Um, I want to begin by uh, just the fact that I smile when I learn about Seattle's history, um, the history of people just stepping up and doing something that hadn't been done, even when it's not an entirely happy story. So this is kind of a pride anniversary. Seattle's first gay bar opened 50 years ago, openly gay bar. It had an unusual name. You know about this, Alex. Are you talking about Sheila's leg? A Shelley's, Shelley's leg. Shelley's leg. Yes. My bad. Okay, so the not nice part of the story is that this woman named Shelley Bauman was attending a parade in downtown Seattle. I will let her friend, Bruce Bowles, tell it. There had been a Bastille Day celebration that included a cannon that had been had a wad of paper in there. As I understand it, the paper was meant to be dry, but somehow it had been 
wet. So we'd pour water on it. So it made a much more uh, dense projectile. And this cannon went off. I think it was deliberately, but I'm not sure exactly the circumstances. But the cannon went off, and it hit her, you know, at full force in the gut. She had a leg amputated. I believe it was her left leg. Okay, that's the awful part. But with the settlement money that Shelley got for her injury, she decided to open this place in 1973 in Pioneer Square, sign above the bar that said, Shelley's Leg is a gay bar provided for Seattle's gay community and their guests. I think the what really characterized it, in addition to being a gay bar, that it was a disco. So the music and the dancing that, that you could do there. So if you were straight or gay and, you know, and Disco Inferno comes on, you want to get up and shake your butt. And that's what people did. So there's mixed opinion about why Shelley's leg closed down. There was a fire due to an accident and a fuel spill, at, on, I think it was on the viaduct or very, very near the business. And that did some damage. They had to close and clean up again. But also, not everything lasts, Disco included, right? So... Uh, over time, for one reason or another, Shelley's leg uh, closed down. But just the, you know, yeah, the history of it. Alex, you knew the story already. Yeah, I worked at the Seattle PI, um, and we would do historical stories in Seattle and work with Mohai. And the sign is in Mohai, so you can see the sign. Um, but, yeah, I learned the story there. I love that story. Yeah, yeah. And, and I heard you can hear the whole, uh, It's a there's a 28 interview over at our friend's place, KNKX, uh, that you can listen to. Piece of history to close out Pride Month. Was there anything that happened this week that made any of my panel smile? You want to tell listeners about? Um, well, tomorrow there's a new little Habitat Beach opening at Pioneer Square, which will be kind of rad to see a little piece of nature coming back along the shoreline. What is a Habitat Beach? It's kind of trying to mimic historically what the ecosystem might have looked like in that little nearshore environment. So bringing back... Well, hopefully inviting back some of the critters that might have historically lived there before there was a lot of oil and other toxins in the area. So this is on the waterfront, Elliott Bay? Mm-hmm. A little sliver of habitat? So it's, yeah, it's between Coleman Dock and Pier 48, so it's a little tiny sliver. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I love celebrating people, and it always makes me smile, and it's my sister Kate's birthday today. So uh, I'll just say happy birthday to her and smile. Kate, many happy returns of the day. I smiled yesterday listening to our colleague Sammy West's story. She's our education reporter, and she was profiling high school students about what it was like to start high school during COVID. And uh, one of the students that she profiled was just awesome, and she talked about how it kind of helped her find herself and come out to her parents. And she came out using a cake that she called her gake. <laughs> and I think it said something like, um, by, like, B-I, by the way, I like boys and girls. Incredible. And, uh, that made me smile for sure. Go uh, check that out if you haven't listened to it. Bringing up Sammy, our education reporter, reminds me that this is not a topic that we have much to say about this week, um, but there was a raft of Supreme Court decisions this week, by the way, um, including ruling in favor of a graphic designer who doesn't want to make wedding websites for gay couples. We've talked so much about florists and bakers, right? So there was that this week, and the court ended explicitly um, race-conscious college admissions policies. I know Sammy, our education reporter, did a piece about this on our noon show, Soundside. Host Libby Dankman spoke with Seattle University's vice president for diversity and inclusion, Natasha Martin, who said the court actually did not completely shut the door on considering the effect an applicant's race has had on their life and character. So not just race, but their own experience. A university could read a student's essay or other materials to ascertain their experience in their background and that that information would be, you know, sort of fair play, right, um, mm-hmm. in uh, an admissions process. It's sort of confusing, <laughs> um, uh, confusing the, the folks out here uh, or many of them out here, which is why we have to take the time to read the opinion very carefully. So Natasha Martin there was stressing we just don't know yet the the effect among uh, in Washington state. We already had this um, state 
initiative, state law that was uh, passed that covered public universities. So more to say about that in the future. One more Supreme Court education-related story. The court rejected President Biden's plan to cancel or reduce federal student loan debts for millions of Americans. So those are some things that just a wave of court decisions happened this week that we will watch. I'm sure all of us in some way will be touched by how Supreme Court changes filter down to uh, states like ours. Um, Okay, that's the show. Did we cover it? I think so. so. Okay, this is Bill Radke talking, and I appreciate your support for Week in Review. It's possible because of uh, subscribing contributors, and we're closing out the fiscal year. And I'll bet since this show started, we probably are now under 300 monthly donors away from reaching that fundraising goal. But uh, you can join us online, KUOW.org, slash donation, slash Week in Review, since that's your favorite show, I'm sure. Seattle Times environment reporter Isabella Breda, Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson, KUOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. Thanks for letting us know what happened this week. Thanks, Bill. It's been great. Thanks, Bill. You can always join us online. We're streaming the show. Um, uh, we're on Facebook. You know, we're on, um, you know, all the all the streaming platforms. YouTube, YouTube and Facebook. And I also um, wanted to give you an update. I spoke to, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the, one of the hottest um, kid names in Washington State. Do you remember this? Uh, is even Alex I was is smiling. here for that. Yeah. You were here. Okay, so Atlas the name is a big, a popular, according to Axios, popular baby name in Washington State. So I wanted to know who names their kid Atlas and why. I spoke to Karina, who did graphic design for hydroplanes, including the one sponsored by Atlas Van Lines. Years later, she was pregnant driving to Portland and saw the logo on a truck and realized it fit for multiple reasons. My partner was a large guy. My dad was a bodybuilder. So I was like, this is like, he's going to be a big guy. So I wanted a name that was really going to like reflect that. And to also go with his last name, which is Powers. So Atlas Powers just went so perfectly together. As soon as we like thought about it, it was like no other choice. We knew that that was going to be the name. Class, we have a new student. His name is <laughs> Atlas Powers. <laughs> so she still likes it. She says Atlas likes it. He's almost nine, and she and she says he lives up to the name every day. Atlas Powers. Uh, so maybe next week I'll I'll uh, I talk to one other Atlas parent. It's just I just love stories about why your kid is named Atlas, and so uh, I'll share another one with you a little bit later. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And join us again next week for Week in Review. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.